And good morning, Sauk Prairie. I am changing it up a little bit because this is a, a segue broadcast on Mornings at McFarland's. Uh, this is going to be our last radio broadcast for uh, Mornings at McFarland's uh, in the current format. We are morphing. We are going into the 21st century with Mornings at McFarland's uh, and going to take on a new uh, programming initiative with the help of 99.7 Max FM. Uh, from this point forward, we're going to become a, a, a whole new format of podcasts and video podcasts and lots of exciting stuff happening on that. So in one way, we're going away, but we're coming back better than ever. So keep posted to the uh, WRPQ Facebook pages and to the website uh, to see more as this develops. But uh, the month of June is going to be a fun month for uh, mornings at McFarland's and the the frame of reference that we're establishing going forward. But to wrap up the mornings at McFarland's, this this journey with this show, this format show, began over five years ago. I think uh, June would have been our, our fifth anniversary. So and so our, our our last broadcast in this format, I invited someone back that's been on the show a couple of times, especially in the COVID uh, crisis that's been going on. Uh, Dr. John McAuliffe is sitting across the table from me and is back again to help us kind of navigate through um, the situation. And uh, he's been so helpful up until this point, so I'm really looking forward to continuing our conversation. Dr. McAuliffe, thanks. Welcome back. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, Thank uh, you. Always good to have your smiling face across the table. And I'll have you know, too, we have implemented social distancing mm-hmm. uh, at our, our even our radio broadcast here that John is sitting a good six feet away from me, I think. <laughs> right. So uh, no need for face masks even at this point. But um, So, John, we've been using the marathon uh, metaphor quite quite a bit to describe the COVID uh, uh, health crisis and the the ways that a marathon runner approaches a marathon and the the things that one learns about oneself as you go through a marathon and the preparation that you've made for the marathon, you kind of see whether or not that preparation is really going to pay off or if if perhaps you're not as well prepared as you thought you were going to be uh, or would be. Um, where are we at? I think last time we talked, we were at mile eight or thereabouts. Yep, uh, so mm-hmm. where do you think we're at now? We were at mile eight and sort of feeling fairly good okay. about things and about our training. But uh, we we sort of uh, started to think, oh, okay, this might not be so tough and we can start to loosen things up a little bit. I would put us right now probably about mile 15. Okay. And we're starting to feel a little fatigue, and we're starting to feel okay. You know, I've kind of had enough of this, and is this? Am I? I can I really make it to the end, or just what kind of? In other words, there's a little self-negative kind of talk starting to sure. come into being here, and sure. and so we're kind of uh, the key thing is is not to listen to that yeah. and to dampen that in any way we can with that negative talk you can really talk yourself out of a race with exactly. that sort of thing i mean and you can talk yourself out of even reaching for that full potential that you have can't you i mean if Correct. you're in the midst of and it and that's that's the danger here is that you start to go negative and you start to go down an entirely different path instead of really realizing what's what has worked for you and what and i think the, the analogy carried over to the COVID, what has worked for us and what has gotten us to this point? And basically it's been social distancing mm-hmm. and keeping that distance, doing the mitigation kinds of things. You know, we went we went through the first part where we tried to contain this virus and we very quickly realized that's not going to work. Right. So then we had to go to the mitigation process. And that's pretty 
you know, uh, sort of uh, pretty primitive kind of things, but wearing the mask, creating social distance, washing hands and stuff. But it worked. Right. It worked. And what it accomplished really was blunting that curve. And so that's that first wave, that surge. And that was always and, kind of the emphasis of that, too, exactly. wasn't it? Exactly. Um, to give healthcare system a chance to really get things together. But even sure. that, I think, was, you know, we've learned a lot of lessons from how we can improve on that situation for sure. Okay. And so there has to be that, I think, we'll, we'll take forward as we go. But I think more than anything, we've learned that there needs to be a consistent, concise, clear message and you know if we say we're in this together then we have to send out a message that we indeed are in this together and what that should look like sure and i i think we're that's another area that we need to really improve upon you know and i know this kind of polarizes people uh just because of the experience i've had here um the, the whole issue of face masks um i've i've seen repeatedly now that people have a, a real misunderstanding about face masks um, fundamentally that there uh, there's an attitude of I'm wearing this mask for me mm-hmm. and you know, that that is used immediately as an attack then because well that's not doing any good for you it's not doing that's it's so people touch their faces and blah blah yeah. and I think no you've you've missed the fundamental thing about a face mask it's not about protecting me it's about protecting you right. and if I have that face mask on I am con- I'm not, maybe not completely, but I'm significantly reducing the amount of droplets that I'm spewing forth if I'm affected, if I'm already infected with the thing. And just so getting that simple message across to people, it seems like we're still fighting that informational campaign. Yeah, and w- when you start to look at even going forward, you know, what does that then look like? In, you know, we're at mile 15, what is it going to look like going into the future? And the face mask is the number one thing. Yeah. And and there's good data to show, and this is data out of Singapore, Hong Kong. You know what? All they did was they did face masks, and they did social distancing, and they did testing. They did a lot of testing and tracking, but they feel uh, the face mask was really the thing that made the difference. Sure. And the reason it it makes a huge difference is, that, you know, droplet. We talk about how the virus is spread in droplets, mm-hmm. but now we're also knowing that, that there's different size particles and the the smaller the particle is the more apt it is to be aerosolized and so when you get down to particles in the five nanograms that's pretty small but it still is enough to house viral particles and they've shown that there are some people that are quotes just super spreaders and they've shown that they can walk into a room and just walk through a room and infect 13 to 14 other people just in walking through the room and there's no way they didn't touch anything. It's just in the air. And it's in the air for three to six hours afterwards. Because when they're so, that small particle, they can just stay that's right. aloft yep. on air currents. And that's the thing on ships, on planes, et cetera. And, that's, sure. that's the, and you can't identify those people. But the mask prevents that. And okay. so there again, that's, that's where the huge thing is. And I feel, I mean, sometimes I notice just in the community that uh, there are Maybe I'm super sensitive to this being a theater guy, an arts guy, but it seems like the looks sometimes from people that are not wearing masks, to me, who wears a mask, it's like, you're an idiot. You know, and I I just want to stop and say, no, you know, I'm sorry you feel like I'm the idiot here, but really, this is about me helping you. Why are you not willing to do the same for me? I I don't understand. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's uh, again. It's 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 a very very frustrating, but it's a learning readiness kind of thing, and yeah. uh, you know, getting and trying to get sort of lessons learned kind of, and to dial it back to that a little bit. You don't you don't see what you don't know. Yeah, and if you don't know about the virus and just how it can be infective and stuff like that, you don't really want to go there. You don't see the need to wear a mask then. Sure, and so until that. And that's the other principle. Until people experience enough pain, they don't change. Yeah. And so <laughs> you gotta get I see it and time and time again and that, yeah. you know, once uh, they experience enough pain, yeah. and unfortunately in this, it's usually a family member or some, somehow it has to impact their life. And, and other people with their jobs and stuff like that. But nevertheless, uh, they'll eventually, I'm hoping and optimistic, they'll eventually get to the point that, yeah, okay, this makes sense. I need to start doing this. Well, it, and, and when, it's interesting because the pain that you're talking about, we we have a lot of experience with the pain of the financial exactly. issues, which is, I think, part of where we're at now is, I can't, I can't have take that anymore. I got to get a job. I got to do something to get bring some food in the table. You know, and what? the quickest way to get the economy back into full speed is to do these mitigation yeah. kinds of things. And so number one is wear a mask. Number two is spend as much time outdoors as you can. And number three is we need to focus testing in the nursing homes. That's okay. a critical, that's a, you know, a third of the deaths are really in the nursing home. Okay. So we need to focus on that. We need to focus on businesses like, like you're doing here. You need to structure the pay, or the person, customers flow and everything so you're reducing you know, the population density. Right. And then we need to focus on high-risk populations, the diabetic, the COPD patient, the lung disease patient, and the patient who's immunized right. or immunocompromised. Right. And there again, that's where the mass comes into, uh, into play. Because so you those, just don't know. Those are the things that if we do that, we can keep moving forward. Without that, we're going to struggle. Folks, my guest today is Dr. John McAuliffe. Uh, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from the sponsors that make this show possible. Don't go anywhere because we're going to come back and talk a bit more about how to make this real for folks, perhaps, uh, or something else. You just never know here at Mornings at McFarland. So don't go anywhere here on 99.7 Max FM. And we're back here at Morning Civic McFarland's. Thanks so much for joining us. And my guest today, the uh, in, the one, the only, Dr. John McCullough. At least he's the only one here in the Sauk Prairie area that we know of, right? right. So, uh, John, thanks again so much for being here. We were talking a little bit in our, our break here about um, this this whole um, – in part of the mystique with COVID. And, you know, I think there, there's a range of folks out there. Some are just so tired of hearing about it. They're so tired about worrying about it. They're, they know friends that have lost their jobs or that are on indefinite layoffs. So that pain is very real. Um, and Sauk County has been particularly blessed. We've mm -hmm. been pretty insulated in a lot of respects. have been uh, able to have very relatively few deaths, uh, relatively few co cases, actually. Um, and I I worry that that has imbued us with a little bit of false bravado or, you know, a sense of, ah, oh, it's not really that bad. And, you know, it's just like the flu. If I get it, so what? I get it, you know. Uh, and that to me is dangerous. That's the kind of thing that says, you know, I've, I've driven a car for a while, so now I'm going to enter the Indianapolis 500, right? It's well, right. And, and <laughs> so, you're at mile 15, and it's easy to get a little bit, oh, there's yeah. not, not nothing to this. Well, right. the wall's yet to, to come, yeah. for sure. 
cancer. And, and when you carry that analogy to the virus is that, you know, probably in our community we have probably the incidence of the virus is, in, as in any place in the country right now, it's anywhere between 5 and 15%. Okay. That's the incidence of the virus. Now, the virus is not going to go away until we're 60%. Uh, acquired immunity by 60% of the population. Okay. So you know how much pain and suffering 5 to 15% has caused. You and, know, and we're, you, we're looking at 60%. So let me clarify that. So and the reason that that's important is because you have to get to the point where there's so many people that have had it and are resistant to it that the virus just can't really spread much anymore. Correct. Right? Correct. Okay. That's herd, referred to as herd immunity. Okay. okay. So it hits a wall, basically, and it can't get – so yep. whereas now – It can you could, constantly you, infect someone else. See, when – there's a infection ratio, and that's the R. And when that R is two to three, that means for every person who has the infection, they'll affect two to three other people. Okay. And that's a pandemic. Okay, that's where we were, and that's where certain areas are experiencing now, but that's where New York was, Washington, et cetera. Okay. Now, when it comes down to one, in other words, one person who has it infects one other person, that's the plateau. And mm-hmm. that's what we've experienced in those areas now, too. So what you want it to get down to is the lower it gets, like 0.3, 0.2, okay, then it's starting to leave the area. And that's where you have to get that. You have to have 60% of the people have to have experienced the virus in some way, okay, okay? either by immunization or by what we call wild form, in other words, gaining the immunity that way. Okay. And we're, we're now with that difference between 10 to 15% and 60%, so the, what is it, 45% yep. of you know pain yet to right. happen before you could achieve that herd immunity. Um, we're at a point in the year where people would tend to think, well, it's summertime, I'm going to be outside more often, I have less risk. Uh, but I worry about things like community spread through gas stations because of all the Illinois people that are coming through on a regular yeah. basis, not to mention wherever else. Um, so our potential risk has just really gone through the roof. And uh, I, I, I don't know how to quantify that for people. And not that you want people panicking, but to just, this is a time to really be thinking about, hey, I should make sure I wipe off whenever I use a gas station pump, or I should take some other precautions. Yep. You got to be responsible and say, okay, it's here. You have to, it's here. We have to, uh, it's not an assumption, it's a reality. And uh, I, I think there, again, people uh, it's so the thought is so daunting to them. They think, okay, I'm not going to have to deal with this. But uh, just to bring about uh, some other research that was done, actually quite a while ago, about how do people deal with stress? You know, mm-hmm. and this was then. This was almost like 40 years ago, and we had a so-called Type A personality and a Type B personality. Yeah, I remember. You remember those that? <laughs> okay, so the Type A personality was sort of the hard-driving, goal-oriented, mm-hmm. generally speaking, a more successful kind of person, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to a Type B personality who was kind of an easygoing, take everything into account, nothing to bother them too much. Well, a lot of research, and the Type A had two to three times the amount of heart disease and stroke, et cetera. And we weren't sure why that was, but now we know that it's because how much catecholamines or adrenaline the type A releases is two and three times what type B does. And that causes stickiness of the platelets, okay? And that encourages clot then within the arteries. That then gives you the heart attack and the stroke, et cetera. So so then we say, okay, we need to turn the A into a B. It doesn't happen. (laughs) What happens is you make the A more more A. (laughs) 
because uh, you say, hey, you got to slow down, you right. got to relax. And right. so here we right. are sitting. One more thing okay, to I'm trying to relax. Yeah. I'm trying to relax. Are you relaxed yet? <laughs> Not yet. So I got two minutes to relax. How can I relax in two minutes? Yeah. And right. so it, you know, so we've sort of realize that that that's really not going to happen but still we we do know that really people who tend to deal well with stress have have four c's basically they have a sense of control mm-hmm. they have a sense that they can make a difference over their reality and there again i would argue that how you do that you wear your mask and you create distance you wash your hands you do the sensible things sure and number two they have they view stress as challenge they don't just view it as something that's imposed upon them. And they view it as a challenge, and they say, what is the challenge? Get, I got a plan. This is how I'm going uh, to approach it. And then they realize, well, if that's not working, I'll do something else. Right, okay? right. And number three is they have a sense of commitment. In other words, they know who they are. They know what they're committed to. And then just not – they know sort of – Military sense, they know what hill they'll die for, okay. and they're not going to die for every hill, right. you know. But right. they do know which ones they will, and they have that sort of that center about them. Sure. And number four, they have a sense of connection. They have a sense of connection, and I, I think if there's one th- really good thing that may come of all this, is that we might realize that how difficult and how painful. I know that the disease is, and the economics are, but also the isolation yeah. that uh, that people are really reacting to, yeah. and they they understand that you know that's that's very painful. Yeah. And if we don't address that, that's going to become more painful over time. So again, that's what we really need to do: is focus on those four C's, and particularly staying connected. It strikes me that that um, isolation. Um, this this attitude of masks, for example, of um, me wearing a mask for me instead of me wearing a mask for you, that that's yet another reflection of how isolated we have been, that we can't seem to think about this. We can't think about the other. We're thinking about, well, what does it benefit me to wear a mask? Yep. It doesn't benefit you. It benefits us. But everyone has to be thinking that way in order for you, there to be a benefit to you. Yeah. So I, that's that seems to be a real conundrum, I guess. Yeah. You know, and yet another revelation of how isolated we have been. Yep. Um, and that's what stress does. That's what pain does. That's what any sort of outside attack does to us. It makes us smaller. We flinch and we get smaller and contracted. And that's because that's uh, genetically again that worked for us. We would stick our head outside the gopher hole and look around. Right. If there was a threat, boom, down we'd go. We'd isolate ourselves a little bit longer yeah. until it went away. Yeah. Well, uh, the virus doesn't doesn't respect that. It's going to go in the hole right with us. Right. And so, right. but that's where again. Um, All of our behavior is for one of two reasons. Either we do things to protect ourselves, which we've been modeled, and that's that's controlled and isolated and, you know, the closed fist kind of thing. Or we can be in a learning posture, and that's open, you know, uh, hands open, greeting, kind, gentle, that kind. And the two are mutually exclusive. So the more you're protecting, the less you're learning. The more you're learning, you can't be protecting. Yeah. And so yeah. that, again, is, is the challenge, okay? Mm-hmm. That, that other second C is how do I challenge myself to be, stay in that learning mode? Yeah. 
There was a, a quote by Maya Angelou that I ran across in a, a presentation not too long ago, and it, it said, um, hope and fear cannot exist in the same room. Mm-hmm. Invite one in. So, you know, that's a really interesting parallel because there is that same thing. The hopefulness is the reaching out. It's the, you know, you have that sense that there's something beyond, something greater that I, I, I can hope for, I can reach for um, versus fear, which is like, ah, no, I better just keep it. So that. Uh, I, I don't want to get too far adrift yeah, here, but uh, Soren Kierkegaard. Yeah. You, okay. Oh, yeah, Kierkegaard. So sure. Kierkegaard was great about dialectics Ooh. and yeah. dialectics are sort of two opposing kind of uh, thoughts. There's or, a 70s yeah. thing for you. Dialectics was all over the place so, in the 70s. So uh, anyway, one of his most famous dialectic is that of love and fear. Okay. So the two, again, are mutually exclusive. The more you love, the less you fear. The more you fear, the less you're capable of loving. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it sounds simple. But again, that's the challenge. Yeah, what's that old thing? Uh, the the greatest distance in the known universe is the twelve inches from a person's head to their heart. So it, uh, there's another one yep. for you to ponder, yep. folks. Uh, folks, my guest today is Dr. John McAuliffe. Uh, we're talking about COVID and what the next steps are. We're going to take another quick break uh, and uh, hear a word from our sponsors and come back. We're, we'll uh, wrap up this week's show and continue our conversation because I suspect we have other things to talk about. So don't go anywhere here on 99.7 Max FM. And we're back uh, for our extended broadcast here. Uh, Dr. McAuliffe and I were talking a little bit in our break about um, the, the some of the technological things that have been happening, um, the uh, prevention, uh, the medications that have been being developed, the uh, the testing procedures have been developed. There have been some new advances there too. Uh, tell us more about that. Where where are things at, and yeah. what's the the hope on the horizon, if you will? Yeah. Again, back to the lessons learned. I really think you're going to see more advanced uh, technology as far as AI, advanced artificial intelligence, basically. Okay. And what we did learn is that there's a, um, a company, it's called Kinza, that's just basically based on taking temperatures. Okay. And what they, what they were predicting, and they've been following influenza now for about two years. Okay. And they have well over two million people that throughout the country that are just taking temperatures whenever their child gets ill or themselves get ill. Okay. And they started to notice a pattern, you know, as influenza was drifting across the country. And then they noticed that even these little blips that started peaking out in New York. And they said, well, this is different, but they didn't think any more of that. And then in retrospect, they went back to it again. You don't, you don't see what you don't know. Right, it right. turns out that was the coronavirus. And that would have given us at least a month's time lead, you know, if we now knew what that, you know, what that looked like. Okay. And then when you look back at the studies out of Columbia University, it said if we had addressed it one week earlier, we would have saved 36,000 lives. If we would have addressed this two weeks earlier, we would have saved 58,000 lives. So again, early uh, early detection is a key, key thing. Sure. And we're going to be doing more and more of that. I mean, people are going to start to understand, hey, this is a real thing, and it's coming through again, and we got to be ready. Sure. And we will be ready, I think, more now, and there won't be this 
you know, problem with testing, et cetera, and all of that stuff sure. is going. So I think that's going to be a much, much uh, more vivid or robust kind of uh, scenario. Um, as far as where we are at uh, chemically there uh, or pharmacologically, uh, there are some good things I think will happen, but they're probably still about a year away. Okay. Uh, remdesivir, um, you probably have yep. heard about that yep. in the news. And that's you know that was a, a a medicine basically that has been studied for the last six years because okay. that's how long it takes to sort of get it through this uh, the phases before it can start to be uh, studied in, in individuals. In other words, phase one and phase sure. two, and now phase three. Uh, but that was on the shelf. They knew that offered some, particularly with the coronavirus, offered some possibility. Uh, very powerful drug, uh, but needs to be used very early in the disease. So the earlier, the better. It's sort of a Theraflu kind of approach to things, though, isn't it? It's a, it alleviates symptoms. It doesn't really cure. No, it. no, so. no. It actually attacks the virus. Oh, it does. Okay. And so yeah. It's, so what it does is it lifts. So what a virus does, or an RNA virus does, it has to live in a cell. Has okay. to, it can't live out for very long outside of a cell. So it has to get in the cell. And then what it does is it, it, op, it tells what of the genes in that cell turn on and turn off okay. to replicate that virus again. Okay. And so it, there's a replicase, which is an enzyme, and that's where the remdesivir kicks that replicase off. So okay. it, it can't reproduce itself anymore. Okay. Okay. So it kills the virus, essentially. Okay. So, and so, but it has to – the problem with it, it's, it's an IV medicine. Okay. And so people have to be symptomatic in the hospital and administer an IV medicine. Okay. There's another medicine, though, and it's now just – it's NHC. Okay. Is, that's all the, that they'll talk about. And this is actually studied out of North Carolina. And it, too, now is going to be entering uh, phase one trials. In other words, human yeah. trials. Okay. It's been through the in vitro or the in vivo studies of the cells and then into the mice, and now it's ready for – human studies. Okay. That is a pill form. And now that acts differently uh, also on the cell because it, it inhibits the RNA virus's ability to alter or correct the mutations that the virus is making. Okay. So basically the virus just destroys itself again in, in our own cell. And so that, too, is about a year away. Okay. So do these then, will they have cross-application capabilities as well so that the next coronavirus, whatever mutation it, it comes across the next time, will they be successful with those as well, the, do you think? That's the, that's, it's shown broad corona, coronavirus uh, okay. activity. Okay. So, but the key thing, too, is that they need to be used early in the disease process. Okay. But that's... So that's that's going to offer testing. hope. Yep. That, that's the testing component that you have to yep. have that in order to. And if we see that trending, and you know we have contacts that have tested positive, we get them on that. It's much like the Tammy flu, like you mentioned okay. with, with influenza. Okay. Yeah. So are there, you know, as we go into the summer months, and there is this. Um, I'm calling it a little bit of a la-la thinking uh, that says, you know, well, it's the summertime now, so flus always get better in the summer. Yeah. Is there evidence to support that that will happen? No. no. As a matter of fact, you know, there have been two uh, sort of two sort of bad epidemics with SARS-1 and then with MERS. And SARS-1 had somewhat of a seasonal component to it. Uh, MERS had no seasonal component to it. And MERS went 
all of coronavirus really starts in bats, basically, okay. and then there's an intermediate host. And when the first SARS, it's the civet cat is the intermediate host. Okay. And with the mirrors, it was camels. Huh. And no seasonal uh, component to that at all. And what we're, what we're starting to see now with uh, SARS-2 uh, is that well, with what we're seeing in Brazil, for instance, that's one of the worst, uh, second worst uh, breakouts other than the U.S. Yeah. Uh, that's hot and humid, and the hottest humid as you can get. Yeah. So that's looking like the virus is not going to be sensitive to to the seasonal variability. Well, and there's a culture where the personal hygiene factors probably enter into the equation. The social structure is very close and very Latin. I mean, there you know, there's yep. a, a Again, lot of affection. Again, density, and, population density yeah. is a key, key thing. And it, yeah. it's just not living close. It's when you have Mardi Gras, when you have sporting sure. events, when you have everything. So again, it's going to take until we have those medicines on board and until we get a vaccine that's probably 18 months away mm. uh, on board, it's going to be population density. I just, why does that take so long? I, and this is just me being ignorant, ultimately, but I, why does that take so long? It's, you know, in this world where we're so used to, oh, well, I'll just make that right now. I'll just build that right now. Well, like so, remdesivir. I mean, that was on the shelf for six years. Yeah. It takes just to get it through the first days that aren't even human phases, okay? So now we're in the human phase. So they say, because no, phar no pharmaceutical companies want to develop a drug that they're not sure... Right. It's, it's, they're not going to invest it if they're not sure it's going to work or not. So once they know, once they know it's going to work, and the only way they know it's going to work is they have the human data. Okay. And so they first start with populations like 30 to 50, and then they go up to hundreds, and then they go to thousands, and then okay, you got your answer. So on each of those earmark or benchmarks, they have to see what are the side effects. Yeah. What kinds of issues are we opening? What Pandora's box are we opening yep. up here? And right? How effective is it, and how harmful is it? It's all risk versus benefit uh, studies. Sure. So, in our what's the time frame on each of those studies? Is are we talking two to four weeks for each benchmark? There or no? It usually takes three to four months, even, oh, really? because okay. you have to see. You know, with for instance the vaccine. You have to see if it's if the human. That's how long it takes to to produce an effective vaccine. Okay. In the same way with the studies, you have to on the adult population. You have to first of all have a have a uh, population that gets the disease, then put them on it and keep them on it and monitor all the other parameters that you're thing without any long-term side effects. So it's just not in treating it, what are the side effects? What are the sequelae then after that? Right. Well, I mean, do we know enough about this coronavirus to be able to d even devise the best strategy for, for attacking it chemically or... Uh, or whatnot. Yeah, I think of the, the ways that this has mutated already, and uh, I forget some estimate I heard about the, the amount of mutations that have occurred already, and the other things that they're seeing pop up as part of the symptomology or the after effects of it, if you will, um, all those seem to indicate something new about the thing that make you wonder, well, geez, how the heck is it doing that? Yeah, I, I, that definitely influences the efficacy and the duration of the efficacy of the, of the vaccine. Okay. But the pharmacology would still be pretty consistent with everything. So okay. that uh, probably wouldn't be as much of a factor 
uh, with the pharmacology. Okay, so the treatment will be not affected by it necessarily, but the right. prevention of it will right. definitely be. Okay. Right. So do we know enough? Of, are, are there new data points there that have interested you or, or uh, are maybe concerned you that you've seen the uh, some of the blood clotting issues that have uh, uh, come well, to the surface? Uh, I, yeah. So there again, these two medicines need to be used early in the disease because okay. uh, once you get you know, the, the people that we see who are in the ICU and then on the ventilators, okay, now they've developed adult respiratory distress syndrome. These two medicines won't help that. Okay. That's a whole other pathophysiology that we really don't have a good treatment for. Even, even people get it from other issues can get adult respiratory distress syndrome. We don't have good treatment for that yet. Okay. So... That that's a whole nother. In the same way with the clotting process, we wouldn't be able to mitigate that uh, pharmacologically necessarily, right? With new any new medicine. I had seen some estimates that the the potential for someone to have, say, a stroke a, a year or longer after having had COVID, so that you couldn't make a case that COVID ultimately was responsible or was a mitigating circumstance that that data won't be available for quite some time. Exactly, exactly. What are the long-term side effects of it? Uh, yeah, we'll still be evolving. And whether this virus then goes into a sort of a dormant state and then reactivates, like herpes, yeah. for instance, yeah. like shingles, that's what that virus does. Yeah. And some people even say, you know, MS is probably from a coronavirus, potentially, hmm. that went dormant and then activates. So we just don't know what predilection it has for the central nervous system, for the peripheral vascular system, for the pulmonary system. Sure. You know, certainly acutely it's more respiratory, uh, but then long-term we're not sure about that. For sure. will, will there be any prognosis for what the next one will look like uh, as a result of all this? Will we get any predictive capabilities, or is it just the trying to tighten down the, the methods of containment and the yeah, identification? It, it, that's what it will boil down to, is this method of containment. Because when you just look at mortality rates, SARS, number one, had a, really a mortality rate of about 18%, which is very high. But then MERS had a mortality rate of 27%. Okay, This virus looks like it has a mortality rate of maybe 2 to 3, but it's way more contagious, Okay, way more contagious. Okay. And so that's what... That's that's the devastating thing about this. And the, unfortunately, with not knowing what the long-term impact are, it's really difficult to say that that two to three percent morbidity is a fair number, right? Right. 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 So, um, any last words of wisdom, advice, hopefulness, or uh, encouragement, or just challenging? I mean, we talk about those four C's, right? Are there? Yeah. Uh, I think the real key is uh, we got to. The thing that that bothers me, one of the most things that bothers me the most, is that you know we're doubting the science behind everything, mm -hmm. and we're realizing that 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 doesn't. Uh, it doesn't work for us. We have to believe in in each other and in the science. Mm -hmm. uh, there are ways to to get through this, but we got to hang together in getting through it. We can't be going down separate paths and and uh, starting to eat our own. You know what yeah, I mean? That's yeah, uh, yeah. that's the most destructive kind of thing. The virus doesn't care about that. The virus is just doing its thing, yeah. and we have to. Um, 
again, what are we committed to? We need, we're all in this foxhole together. Yeah. And we all have to have each other's back rather than, than otherwise. And with that, we will get through it. And we'll get through it with some style and with some grace. And that's the challenge. Yeah, there's a, there's a real challenge here of uh, getting past the polar, polarization process that uh, our politicians and our media outlets have been particularly good at uh, exercising <laughs> extreme amounts of influence yeah. uh, over their constituencies. And unfortunately, it's uh, the, the regular Joes and Janes out here in the world that are paying the price of that because yeah. the misinformation that's spread to people, the, uh, the lack of really confronting the, the real issues that are at work here, um, and as you're saying too, the uh, you know we can't afford to have a, a philosophy of well, I don't believe in that whole thing. You know, I I don't have to believe in electricity for it to work. Mm-hmm. You know, and for a long time, people thought lightning was just you know these flashes of you know they didn't understood, and it took science to understand to do the testing to prove that lightning is just a form of electricity and it's deadly. And if you don't, you know, you can handle it safely in a lot of situations. We harnessed it in wonderful ways. Um, but that didn't change the science of what electricity is. And I, it, it strikes me that there's there's a component here where, unfortunately, I think some faith-based communities have used this, you know, oh, we don't have to worry about that. God will protect us. It's like, you know, God created us in his image if you want to go down that road and the image includes the ability to think scientifically about things so uh that's kind of foolish yeah and to uh yeah and to think you know okay so we just have to limit our borders we have to do this no that this isn't the virus doesn't do that we have to think again globally just like global warming i mean we got to think globally we got to attack these problems not by getting smaller, but by getting bigger. Yeah. And uh, what's best for everybody? Exactly. So, exactly. Uh, there's a, a scene in uh, our town uh, where George and Emily are uh, first figuring out how much they love one another, and uh, in the background, as they're having this relatively simple conversation, but so genuine and caring, and um, you know, you you just see how George just can't imagine life without Emily, and Emily just sees so much of how she wants to be a part of George's life. And in the background, the choir is singing, "Blessed be the ties that bind." <laughs> and I always thought, you know, what a wonderful thing for Thornton Wilder who constructed this sure. world in which the simple man and female relationship and this young love that's budding here in front of everyone is, you know, supported by the choir singing the thing that does it all, which is blessed that tie that binds so I guess we'll leave that with let's bless the tie that binds us all here folks and uh, one of the binds is to care about one another care about your family care about the people that uh, you're going to impact today if you don't take things seriously and do what you can do responsibly right right relationships most therapeutic tool we have yeah yeah connection so it's not social distancing it's physical distancing and social connectedness right I, I think I learned that from you on our first show together. (laughs) So thanks again, John. Take care, everyone.